And welcome. You're listening to the Needle Mythology podcast with myself, Pete Perfides, brought to you in proud association with good folk at Flare Audio, inventors of the peerlessly magnificent jet earphones. Um, this is an occasional get together in which we celebrate records we love and the people who make them. It's always an absolute delight to meet up with today's guest. He is, in his own unassuming way, a linchpin of the post-punk Liverpool scene. He played alongside Holly Johnson, Jane Casey, Budgie and Bill Drummond in Big in Japan. He was also instrumental in the early career of Echo and the Bunnymen, producing their first three albums. And when he was done with them, he formed a duo with Paul Simpson of the Wild Swans. And together as Care, they recorded a trio of truly great singles. More production work followed for him. That's his handiwork you can hear on records by the Pale Fountains and Shack, the Icicle Works, the Fall, the Colourfield, and also the unutterably brilliant Therese by the Bodines. And then, right at the end of the decade, he almost by accident, it seems, became a pop star when his debut single with the studio project called The Lightning Seeds ended up in the top 20. That song was Pure, which set the template for a string of brilliant records which sustained his profile throughout the following decade and beyond. I'm talking about hits like Sense and The Life of Riley, Marvellous, Lucky You, Change, You Showed Me. And of course, in 1996, there was Three Lions, which with the help of David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, gave us the most well-loved football song of all time. And... Uh, then, in 2004, he parked the Lightning Seeds and delivered an album which I have to say I truly regard as one of the great lost classics of its time. A beautifully stripped-back, lovelorn set of songs recorded with members of the Coral and the Zootons, who were emerging Liverpool bands he was producing at the time. Indeed, it's a record I love so much that I started a record label in order to put it out on vinyl for the first time. That record is called Tales Told. Obviously, we'll be talking about that along the way. And the person I'm talking about is, of course, Ian Brodie. Ian, are you still awake? I'm here. That's a lovely intro. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Just lying smiling in the dark, shooting stars around your heart. Dreams come bouncing in your head, pure and simple every time. Now you're crying in your sleep. I wish you'd never learn. So, um, for some reason, I want to start right in the present. I want to know what you're doing right now in 2019. Right now in 2019, I'm trying to finish off some songs, which will be the first time for a long time that I've actually, well, not so much to finish off songs, finish off some recordings of songs, which I would like to release, which I haven't done for a very long time. And I'm playing a few gigs, and it's 25 years since my album Jollification. So I think we're going to do a couple of gigs soon where we actually play the album in the way it was recorded in quite a faithful way, oh, which wow. is a bit of a tall order, actually. So It, it would um, be a tall order, wouldn't yeah, it? Because yeah. it, it was quite a sort of partly machine-tooled sort of record, wasn't it? Yeah. So, and it's all, it's, the drums are all loops and stuff like that. So we have to, uh, it, you know, obviously I will have live drummer. I don't mean I'm going to do that, but... I'm just going to basically try and recreate the songs in, a, in quite a 
a faithful way. We'll see how faithful that turns out to be. You're lying again. Say you don't, but then you do. I'm trying again to build a wall around your heart, then break it through to you. That'd be really brilliant because it's a record that was. Um, I know you're not too deliberate about what you do, it's not like you're trying to follow fashion or anything like that, but it was almost by accident the right record at the right time for you, wasn't it? It took a little bit of a while to get going. It was a, a funny um, situation, really, where it just stuck around, really. It never got very high in the charts, but it just stuck around for 18 months and kind of went up and down and this, that and the other. And when people used to say, you know, you were a singles band or an album band. Yeah, yeah. And I'd always imagined I would definitely be a singles band. Right, but right. actually I was an album band, it turned <laughs> out. Well, you were kind of both, really, because that album in particular produced quite a few hit singles. It was kind of a moment. I think the album before that I'd done Sense... There was a couple of songs that I, I still play live and really love, but I, it was it was slightly miserable. <laughs> and uh, I was reading a Sherlock Holmes book at the time, actually. That's the kind of person I am. <laughs> I'm going to change that. I was reading Jack Kerouac at the time. No. Um, <laughs> I think and, that's what people like about you, though, is that you're not really going to get that. The Sherlock of... Holmes angle. <laughs> yeah. um, and I remember them saying, you know, Watson was annoyed with him because he just stayed in his flat with his jollification, which was his cocaine. Oh. And I remember thinking, what a funny expression, you know. So he's just, he sticks around with his jollification. I thought, I'm going to do an album of my jollification. And that's what it did. That's like not your scene, is it? That kind of like, what actually became of, of what we called Britpop later on, which was what was quite a cokey scene. It's very far removed from what you're like, so it's kind of quite an ironic thing to call the record. Yeah, well, it, there was a hint of irony in me calling it that, you know. Yeah. And I want to make a record that's kind of pushing some kind of boundary somewhere but yeah. at the same time they're quite simple songs and it's almost like the balance between those two for me is is really the challenge most of the time I'm more likely to put a Lightning Seeds record on when I'm feeling quite sad, actually. And um, so, and if I think about, a re you know, like that album, if I think about Perfect or, or Change, especially Change, which I think is just a sort of, to me, is a song about a moment that's almost gone before it. You know, it's sort of there in a way. And I don't know if that's something that is just you, if it's deliberate or, or what, really. No, I think I'm, you know, actually I was chatting with someone the other night about hoarders. You know, there used to be that programme on ages ago, hoarders. <laughs> and I was saying, I'm very sentimental, you know, I don't like throwing things away. And I worry about things not being there. I suppose I'm quite insecure in that way. But at the same time, I hate clutter. So I throw things away and I get miserable about it. You know, I, I sort of lose out both ways. I'm not like, a whore, I'm a wannabe hoarder, but uh, I just can't, you know. What do you, can, can you give me an example of something you regret having thrown away? 
Um, I've like uh, I, g- I gave a couple of guitars away actually, and when I get an idea in my head, it's a sort of an OCD in revert. You know, I just can't have that there anymore. Do you know Not where those guitars are now? No, actually, I was really struggling writing. It was a long time ago. It was a red guitar. I loved that guitar. And uh, I just thought, I'm never going to write another tune. This all sounds <laughs> rubbish. And I, I lived near Penny Lane at the time. There was, a, there was a shop in Liverpool on Smithdown Road. And I just kind of went in and said, I don't want these guitars anymore. And they were like, whoa, you know, these are good. It's like, I don't want them anymore. And they were like, well, you know, so just give so, me whatever you want. Just take them. I don't need them in my life. Did they know who you were? Was it like they went home that day and said, you know, guess what? Ian Brody came into my shop. I would shop. imagine. I would imagine. And I went back about two weeks later and I said, have you still got those guitars? <laughs> they said, no, we haven't. <laughs> I'm quite pro hoardy and I feel like this about my record collection. I feel like every single record in my collection is like a diary entry because I remember what I was doing, where I bought it from, and I can kind of trace back what was happening in my life from that sort of transaction. So hypothetically, if someone came into my house and sort of said, you're probably, what, you're 49, you're going to be alive for maybe 20 more years, you don't, you'll probably play this record about two more times, I think it can go, I'd throw them out. Yeah, I always used to imagine in that programme, you know, they'd come in, do all that, and I used to think, six months later, that guy's going to be just crying in the middle of an empty room, wishing all his stuff was back, you know what I mean? No, I know, I mean, like, like I always say, home is where the stuff is. When you sort of got the idea for the lightning seeds, I would imagine that um, stuff like Top of the Pops performances and stuff maybe not was, was not foremost in your thoughts, but I could be wrong. No, d- definitely, it definitely wasn't in my thoughts. When I first started going to see bands in Liverpool in those days, I think I wasn't very aware of what was going on outside my own kind of world. And at that time in the 80s, I really didn't like hardly anything that was popular that no one I knew did, yeah. you know, and it felt like bands like the Bunny Men or bands, whoever it might be, we were very much not what was happening. You know, what was happening was Tavares or, you know, I don't know I where they came from, that name, but <laughs> Tavares, maybe a bit later. <laughs> nothing on. against Tavares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, Perhaps yeah, we could play some now. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Also, it's, it's the way guitars were being made to sound as well, and like drums, like that ga- those gated sort of snares and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it was just like the opposite of, you know, my sensibility. So I think in those days, Liverpool was more than it is now, you know, a sort of cultural island maybe, you know. So it didn't feel to me like, oh, you know, I was a loner. Everyone I knew felt the same way. Mm-hmm. All of us felt the same way. We all... You know, like Love and Scott Warren, whoever it might be in the doors. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. You know, and that was kind of was just what we listened to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's post-punk Liverpool's adoration of, of like, melodic psychedelia. Most French chimney burning. Water. 
or beef art, which is quite unmul, yeah, you know, yeah, mad yeah. things yeah. like were, were massive there, you know. It's just been a constant, hasn't it? Sort of from those post-punk days. And where does that come from? Yeah, it's a funny dynamic. You know, I've got a little theory about some of that, which is a bit of a mad theory. Go for but, it. But uh, where I grew up, there used to be a lot of Woolworths shops around Liverpool. So my first guitar was an audition guitar that I bought from Woolworths. And it, I think it was £19.99 at the time. And you got a little amp for five or something. Yeah. But also they used to have these... Uh, Records with the corner cut off them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Called deletions, maybe. Deletions, yeah. Something like that, you know. And later, actually, I read Irving Azop's book or someone like that, and it turns out that these people were running a scam and they were sending a load of records through sort of weird warehouses to Germany, cutting the corners off it and selling them as deletions and pocketing the money. But so they obviously were flooding into Liverpool. You know what? That's amazing. I think that's amazing because you also used to get them in like like carousels at newsagents, like special deletions racks. And there was one in um, when I went to further education college in Bournemouth in Birmingham. There was a newsagent there that had a deletions rack. And at the end of 1985, I picked up the most recent albums by R.E.M. and Julian Cope off that. They'd only been out for about six months, so they couldn't have been deletions. No, I think it was it was a bit of a con. And- when it started, it was the guy who ran Electra and what was on stuff like that. So those albums, a lot of them were love. So you'd you know you'd get all these love albums for basically I think it was thirty nine p. Tangerine Dream was always there. Yeah. Doctor Faust, you know, quite psychedelic stuff. Oh, Liverpool was flooded with people. Thinking, you know, I, I listened to those albums continuously because I, you know, was voraciously wanting music I hadn't heard. How old were you? Probably about 12. You know what? It's one of those theories that's so alluring that <laughs> you, it might be true, but yeah. more, Urban more, myth. more to the point, you want it to, you really want it badly to <laughs> yeah. be true. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. I'm fascinated by this idea that you were in a supergroup before anyone knew there were a supergroup because, of course, time doesn't go in reverse. Time goes forwards. So it just seems bizarre that you all, like without exception, everyone in that band, big in Japan, went on to do these kind of crazy things. Is that just a coincidence? You could widen that out, really, because... I think at that time in Liverpool, you know, we were all a bit misfits uh, to a degree and everyone gathered at Eric's and you kind of, the fact that you liked, you know, Bowie and the Velvet Underground and Rocks, you know, it was like, you know, I didn't really know people who'd liked the Velvet Underground before that, yeah. you know, and stuff. And, and people gathered in a bit of a scene and out of that scene of people, various bands came out. So I would say that Big in Japan, we were the group, but, in those early days, you know, we, we were only we were only together about three months, probably, or something. It wasn't like you know a, a long, long time, and we were pretty, you know, pretty rubbish, really, um, but conceptually pretty good. I mean, I learned more in that group, really, than I, you know, I just learned to think out of the box more, really, not just in a in a straight line. But I, you know, when we used to go to gigs, we'd get a transit van, and Bill was old enough to hire a transit van. And then we'd be in Matthew Street taking the... We used to store the equipment in Eric's Club on Matthew Street. 
and anyone who was around sort of local characters. So sometimes Julian Cope would be in the van coming to the gig or Pete Burns or there's a kid called Boxhead who used to come. So there would be about 20 of us in the back of the van with the equipment and we'd sort of fly up to Leeds or whatever. Yeah. And um, everyone would get on stage, really, you know, uh, at some point in the set. Do you mean what? Like what? Say, say like, okay, like to pick a random name, Julian Cope gets on stage with you. What would he? What would they even be doing there? They'd be shouting "Big in Japan" <laughs> because that was basically we had that song. We used to play it three times in the set. <laughs> we had about five songs. One of the songs was called "Reading the Charts." We used to feed back, and Jane used to read that week's charts. That's brilliant. Um, we used to have to pad it out and play Big in Japan a few times. And basically, the only words in Big in Japan, the song, were Big in Japan. So, you know, everyone could kind of join in that. And I think people who were at the gig would get up on the stage as well. So it was, it was a kind of a... It was like a group outing more than a gig, you know. Really. I love the a works idea. outing from Matthew Street. I love the idea of reading the charts, because I, like, I love the idea that, like, the band could reform now, and you could do that song and read out today's charts, you know. <laughs> it would work in any era. <laughs> or probably not work in any era, actually, the way we did it. God. What would you have said, like, you know, if, if you'd all gone to see, like, a, a fortune teller or you're, like, a kind of mysterious woman with a crystal ball and she'd shown you, like, in 20 years' time? First of all, you look into the mysterious crystal ball and there's Bill Drummond with the KLF and he's about to burn a million quid and he's written a manual on how to get to number one and he's kind of in a kind of homemade mm-hmm. TARD. He's in a... Maybe that's him. Maybe he's in a homemade TARDIS on top of the pops. I mean, obviously, that would be a pretty surprising thing to be confronted with. But how much of the bill then would you have seen in that eventuality? I think you'd see it. I mean, Bill was someone who was, you know, loved scams. And he used to feel like art is anything you could get away with, really. And, you know, he loved the idea of Andrew Lou Goldham and a scam and people... You know, I... I felt like you're counting on people being a bit stupid. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't. I, you know, it wasn't my thing. But he, that was very much him. Yeah. And it's exactly the same now. It's in a complete straight line. You can yeah. imagine him, you know, hatching a thing. This, you know, what would Andrew Blue Golden have done? He'd throw a sheep or something. You know what I mean? And it, and it's just, it's just gone in a complete straight line to me. Yeah, no, he's, you know? he's honoured that vision. You yes. know, in quite a spectacular way. Okay, you're looking at the crystal ball, and then that. There's Julian Cope with a sort of traffic cone on his head in the in in the nineties. Countercultural kind of neo druid writing books about standing stones and uh, is that more surprising than Bill Drummond or let or what? What's on the sliding scale? Uh, it's funny, you know, because those people obviously we were all very young, and I'm sure, you know. I think you are at the moment when you're just forming who you're going to be when you're about 18, 19. So, you know, for me, if I think about Julian, I've got a lot of affection for Julian. And, you know, he was a guy who'd come from Tamworth, near where you're from. And I think he was at Teachers Training College somewhere in Ormskirk or something. Came to Eric's, thought, this is amazing and mad. And really embraced, you know, the stuff he would like there would be Perubu, Devo. You know, the weirder things, really, you know. You know, obviously, Sid Barrett, or, you know, 
although that's obviously of an earlier era. Mm. I think we were all, you discover those things, you know. Yeah. And, I, and he was, to be fair to Jim, he was the first person who ever really, I remember really talking about Scott Walker lots and mm. lots and lots, you know. I uh, loved Scott Walker and, you know, you can hear that in, in a lot of his, his stuff. Yeah, yeah. He was the reason I heard Scott Walker for the first time, or at least kind of made that sort of connection. Yeah, um, and, and it was kind of a forgotten thing, the Scott Walker thing, I think, then. It hadn't been rediscovered, you know, it was sort of the first rediscovery of that probably. Yeah, kind of uncool in a way, because, you know, you would have associated him with sort of a kind of main, his mainstream success of earlier on. Go on to Ian McCulloch and, and the Bunnymen in particular, your work with them because um, you're producing that. What a well, that's a really young age to be a producer. How old would you have been at this point? Well, I always think I was younger than I was. And when I look at the dates, I'm like, I'm not quite as young as I thought I was. Max, about three months younger than me, and oh. Will and Les are about a year older or something like that. So I'd have been a you know just slightly younger than them. You know, we were obviously pals, you know. Hmm. Uh, how did you end stuff. up sort of actually doing that? Well, it was a funny it was a funny situation really. So Big in Japan started a label called Zoo Records. You know, I wanted to be a musician myself and Budgie and we hitchhiked to London to be musicians. <laughs> you literally did what at the same actually, time? No, we got a train, twelve pound saver. But at the same time? Yeah, we both it was a really strange thing. We did our last kind of gigs and we were chatting and we said, you know, should we go to London? You know, something good might happen. And um so I just remember we both bought £12 safe ticket and we got to Euston and then we, we stayed in Euston for a few hours. It was a really hot day and we sort of didn't know what to do from that point. We didn't really have any plan. And we saw a poster saying what is now Coco was called The Music Machine. Yeah. And there was a poster saying The Clash supported by The Automatics. And that tour had been in Liverpool at Eric's a week or so before and I used to do the help the load in, you know, the local so this is taking the, the amps in. This is the Coventry Automatics. Yeah, okay. and I'd help them get the equipment into Eric's, and I'd help the support band as well and, and sort of said hi to them. So we kind of knew them vaguely, and, and we were just connected to that. So we wandered down there, and it was like kind of a sunny day. And I think I sort of remember the back bit in Mick Jones was there and we sort of went oh and he said oh you know come in and we kind of went in would you have met terry that day yeah so that because that's like I don't, a... yeah i mean it's funny i don't really remember particularly does he talking to him that day because you've been no. you've stayed mates like even to the yeah to well i think i must have met him that day but i don't really remember that yeah. much i mean i was so young and it was so kind of overwhelming being in london that's like your first day in london you ended up at the um the music machine now coco Talking to Mick Jones. Well, it's strange. By the end of the night, Budgie was in the slits. <laughs> and it was played on their album, you know. And was basically then Susie and the Banshee. So it was, it was, it was weird, really, you know. From the cradle bars comes a beckoning voice that's saying spinning. You have no choice. Where did you stay? Where were you, like, sleeping? We stayed on a floor of a squat in Kilburn. <laughs> in the end. Uh, but we you... didn't really have anywhere to stay. We were going to sleep in the station. You know, it was, I think it was just that time. You kind of did that because we'd always, you know, I'd remember 
you know, I'd hitchhike to Leeds to see a Sex Pistols get, or, a, or a Bowie get. You know, you, you kind of did do that and yeah. sleep wherever you, ever you could, really. And what did you, how, how long did it take you to sort of get a kind of head of steam on that time in London? Yeah, that didn't work out so well for me. And I was kind of around for a bit. And then I think I, I played in a band for a bit. And I ended up really wanting to go back to Liverpool. And, and when I went back to Liverpool was when I produced The Bunnyman, actually. It sort of ties into your question in the end. Like, Bill had started the label, and he, and so, you know, he didn't travel far for the groups. It was, yeah. like, the people who, who were around, which was Julian had the teardrops yeah. and, um, you know, and The Bunnyman. And uh, there was a flat in Penny Lane, and, and I think Mac and Pete White, they all lived there. Yeah, and we'd all be round there, and those bands kind of formed around that, you know. And there could have been various people in each different band a different day, in a way, you know. I mean, I'm interested in this idea that you know, there you are, just watching all this stuff happen, and you're never quite in the centre of it, but you're watching, and especially this you know, fascinating rivalry kind of emerging between the Bunnymen and the Teardrops, because of course the te- Teardrops have chart success more quickly than the Bunnymen. <laughs> So the Bunnymen don't have hits for a while. But the story as I remember it is, is big in Japan. We were the only ones who actually played. And then it was a tongue-in-cheek thing. They put a poster up on Improbe, said, sign this petition if you think big in Japan should disband. You know, but it was, a, it was a, a between friends thing. They make out in books that it was a bit more than it was. It was quite yeah. funny because I think the first word to sign it was Bill. Yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 you know, yeah, it, but... It uh, would be. And then <clears throat> they had the two bands and they put out the singles... And at the time, the Bunnymen got a deal. And it was all very... Bill was kind of the manager and the label and the publisher. I don't know, you know, it was all a bit, you know, like no one knew what was going on. Mm. And the Teardrops couldn't get a deal because they felt that Julian, the record company said Julian wasn't a frontman because he played the bass. Ah, right, OK. So it was like, well, there's no frontman. So as I remember the story now, I, I don't want to get into trouble here and, no. you know... But as I remember the story, there was some friction because Bill took the Bunnymen's advance for their album and used it to make Teardrop's album <laughs> without telling them. <laughs> and then with the album, the Teardrops did get a deal and, and it was paid back. But there was some friction. I think that's the start of the friction. Well, you know, like young... and an argument about who decided to use camo for their stage sets. That was they were the two. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's a bit like like Bow Wow and Adam in the Ants with the drums. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's, 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 I guess the point is, you know, young young people and young young blokes. I think probably are kind of quite um, mercenary in terms of the way they they compete against each other because this is you know you don't want to, you're in your 20s this might be the only chance you get and the stakes weren't high you know what i mean it was just a group of lads all yeah trying to be in bands without i don't think any of us thought you know yeah that would go that far really you know if you're the bunny men and you know the teardrop that's been on uh, being on top of the pops then sure you're going to want to be on top of the pops as well you know yeah, well, it was there was a the way I started producing the Bunnymen was I'd kind of come home, and uh, I was at a bus stop on Smithtown Road, and it was raining, and they'd bought a transit van and they had their record deal and they'd been recording, and they kind of came down the road and saw me at the bus stop, and gave me a lift up to up to the same way I was going, and when I got in they were playing a cassette, 
And I said, this is good. You know, what's this? And they went, it's us. You know, we've just been in the studio in this place, Rockfield. It was great in Wales. But, you know, we've been in with this producer and we don't think it's this, that and the other. And me being me with probably not much filter. I don't yeah, have yeah, a great yeah. filter. Sort of splurt stuff out. And I basically, you know, I said, well, yeah, it's this is wrong and that should be there and you should do this and that and the other. And And for some reason... I don't know why, but I'd always been that kind of fella that, um, like, I remember when they formed the Bunnymen and they didn't have a drummer. Mm. I remember Will ringing me up and saying, which drum machine should we buy? And I was thinking, why was he, I don't know why he would be phoning me, to, but it was almost, we were pals and I was the fellow who yeah. you might ask about that stuff for no reason. I don't really yeah. know why. And I didn't really think anything of it. So did you, were you able to recommend? Uh, well, no, I, I just Echo. made a Oh, previously, no, I don't think I, I didn't even know. I don't think I, I was like, well, you know, go, there's a shop there, you know, <laughs> buy the one that they've got, you know. But, and I think they had one, which was an, a Mini Pops Junior, and it turned out to be just the right one. Nice, But okay. um, actually, to finish that story, so they, I got a call from Bill Drummond, and he said, you know, they said, you know, you've got some great ideas about the songs, would you produce it? Uh, and I was like, I don't, I don't, not, I'm not a producer, you know, I don't really ever want to be a producer. And he was like, well, you could just produce these songs. And I was like, I feel like it's crossing a line, you know, I'm a songwriter. I don't really want to, that's not really what I, what I want to do, you know. Mm. So then he said, well, he phoned me back and he said, what about if we do it under a different name and no one really knows and you just find a pseudonym? So I came up with the name Kingbird. So on the Bunnyman records that I did, it just says a Kingbird production because I didn't really want people to yeah. think of me. So I've always been very reluctant to be a producer. You know, it's something I've done in between times, but not something I ever really wanted to do. After we'd done Porcupine, I remember Bill Drummond and Dave Balfe. It was quite weird, actually, because and I remember them saying to me, look, you know, we want you to be in the band, you know, you're so much a part of it at the moment, you know, it would be good if you just were in the band. At the time, it would have been my, I'd, they were my, I loved them, you know, yeah, absolutely yeah. adored them, adored Mac, yeah. but I just thought, you know, I shouldn't be in that band, I would change the dynamics so much. So I said, you know, I, I just think there's something very special about their chemistry. And then the next time I saw them, there was about 50 people on stage, and they got, you know, they had, I don't know, every, you know, people on congas, someone on a oh, keyboard, that, yeah, that's you know, it was going. and it was that kind of period. And I always felt it lost something at that point, even though it gained something great with Ocean Rain and the strings. Gain and a lost. Yeah, time. I mean, the one for me is the Shine So Hard live EP, where, you know... You, it's very you, stark, isn't it? It's you amazing. Pins you back, that sound, you know. got to ask you about the back of love which was one of your productions and the bunnyman's first hit and not necessarily what they were after straight away was it no well i got into some trouble over over that really so at the time that was the release after shine so hard i think and they re you know they really wanted to get in the charts basically they really wanted to get in the charts there was always a lot of friction in the band, you know, between Will and Ian. And, of course, Pete was there, who was so magnificent and just such a great drummer, you know. Yeah. And, and they were a great 
banned by then. So they, you know, they had this tune, and it was like there was a whole big argument about. Um, I remember it's just when you're a kid. I, I remember there being a big discussion about. You know, the record company really wants us to do this song, so Will was instantly against it. <laughs> and one of his main points of contention was that it had the word love in it, in, in, the, in the song, Bless. and maybe the title, you know, which was an absolute no-go for him. But I remember this conversation with Mac explaining that it was the back of love, <laughs> which made it completely okay, because <laughs> it wasn't that. It was the back of it. Uh, you know these conversations going on, which were great, and uh, you know because I look I look back really fondly at that stuff now because you know that was a that was a big decision you know so then it was just, you know we, we were going to do it and they had a demo of it that was really good but it was much much slower and Pete had a very sort of complicated drum part where he crossed his hands and right. it was a very unique thing but obviously it was at a completely different tempo and I kind of just felt like wasn't the right thing to be to do so when i came in to produce it i made it much much faster and sort of changed you know we were pals so it wasn't like you know i wasn't telling anyone to do no. something but we just like generally kind of yeah, yeah. And, and i was listening to loads of jacques brel and so was ian and we were listening to and i was like i really think we should speed this up make it like aggressive and you should spit it out like Jack Bryan. Should and he was, I was trying to get into you know it was we were talking about really roll your heart you know like you know and he kind of does sing the vocal very yeah. like that. Now you know? say it. I'm on the chopping block, chopping up my stopping thoughts. Self doubt and selfism were the cheapest things I ever bought. of hatched this plan that sort of and we went and recorded it and, and the part it's actually quite uncomfortable to play that song because yeah. all the parts are kind of meant to be slower yeah. so you know even the jing 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 at the beginning you know it's, it's, yeah. it's like you, you're I mean, trying to get to a train you're going yeah, to it's like every, everything I love about that song is in all that kind of that urgency it's in a words. hurry to get there yeah, you know yeah, yeah. it really is When we finished it, Bill was destroyed, hated it. Everyone hated it, you know, you've ru- you ruined the whole song. It was it was a disaster, to be fair, you know. And it was, you know, it was, uh, I thought, well, I'm never doing this production again. I'm <laughs> totally to blame. And then it turned round, and then about, you know, a few weeks later, Bill decided it wasn't absolutely awful and ruined. It was the best record since... <laughs> yeah, and I suppose I'd put it was the first time I'm putting strings on a bunny manor, so I'd, I thought it should have cellos mainly because you know the Jack Brell thing that I was thinking about, but I wanted the cellos to play really, really hard. Hang on, the, the, is there brass on it or is that the cellos? That... Just cellos playing. I knew this one word of musical, I'm completely don't know any, I'm yeah. not tra- you know, don't know how to write music, and I knew one word called Marcato which apparently has hit it really hard. 
So I, it was me down the microphone saying, Mark Arto, very Mark Arto. Four cello players. Very uh, good. In octaves, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how much I love that song, but in a way I can see Bill's point because it's one of those things where with the, the, the hindsight of it having been a hit, then everyone's wise. But actually, I remember, you know, like me and my, my brother, my brother was obsessed with Mac and even had his hair like him. And, um, and we were sitting there watching Top of the Pops. And it was alarming because it was like, it wasn't, it was like the most uncompromising way to have a hit. And then many years later, I was thinking, I'd probably be a bit jealous if I was Julian because Julia was trying to have hits with th- things that I love as well, but things like Passionate Friend, which are very much trying to be hits. The friend I have is a passion. And like months after the teardrops kind of hit the skids, here they are just rolling up and doing just a really uncompromising hit. Yeah, I think it's a bit like when they say Oasis and Bunny. They're actually nothing like each other at all. You know, the, the Bunnyman is four people who play their instruments in a really unique way and argue about everything. You know, eventually, obviously, Mac became the leader of that band, but, but not for a while, you know. And I think it is really hard for bands to be democratic in that way. You need someone who's a driving force, yeah, I think, yeah. generally. You know, and obviously with the teardrops extremely early on, you know, Paul was gone and Mick was gone mm-hmm. and it was Julian and really session people. Uh, so they're very much the opposite yeah, no, in a way. You know. Absolutely. A year later, you were actually back in doing the thing that you were kind of wanting to do all along, which was you were in a group with Paul Simpson, formerly of the Wild Swans, and you put out these three kind of great singles, which really did sort of sound like chart contenders, none of which actually managed to get inside the top 40. But um, nevertheless, I think people who know them remember them kind of really fondly. I guess the one that people remember most is Flaming Sword, which was... You sort of ended up doing that on the telly. On t- I think I remember vaguely remember you on a couple of kids' programs. Maybe I could be wrong. No, I think I think it was the one after. It it, it was it was a strange thing because um, you know Paul, you know, it's kind of a sensitive soul, really. And uh, so we we never did it. We never did any gigs, and it was we were just kind of around about Liverpool. And I had this whole vision of what I, I kind of wanted to do. And the first single, we got a producer in. And I, I really liked the song. Is this uh, Whatever Possessed You? Yeah, and yeah. I, I really liked the song, but it, it kind of, you know, it was almost like moulded into something of the times. Yeah. And it didn't sound like me, really. It sounded, you know, not terribly like me to a degree. And then I decided, right, I, I Flaming Sword, I'd just produced myself. So I kind of did, and I wanted to put bassoons and piccolos on it, and you know I, I loved all that, um, just the idea of the orchestration, and I, you know, I, I, and you know, just very sixties. Yeah, like why not? Know, why not do that? Yeah, exactly. That you can make stuff. it whatever yeah. you want. Yeah, and that you know sounded closer to what I kind of felt like I wanted to do.
did an album and we got we had a producer and it just sort of ground to a halt and it just didn't it felt hard difficult to do so we just we never finished it so we never did a gig and it just sort of we, we put the third the third single came out whatever possessed you and then you know it, it was just almost like for me that was a real pivotal moment because you know I'd always seen myself as the kind of uh, I'd always seen myself as not the singer but it felt like I have got quite a you know a singular vision yeah. and I am quite dogged yeah. you know I just have to get it a certain way or I feel ill well, it's like, it's, I guess if you're hearing it a certain way in your head then um, that's um, yeah it's the third single My Boyish Days is that what whatever you possessed you that's, oh, so the first was the sorry third. the first one's My Boyish Days right okay and then Flaming Sword then whatever possessed you uh, okay while well, we're sort of in the 1980s, I guess the other, it's you're in this kind of ironic situation of sort of not necessarily wanting to advertise yourself as a producer, and yet people seem to sort of seek you out because there's a, your work with the Pale Fountains as well, which I guess was another outlet for you possibly to sort of you know the the kind of orchestral uh, baroque flourishes that you were talking about earlier on could also find an outlet in those early Pale Fountains records. Yeah, well, it was it was interesting the Pale Fountains because. Now, it, you know, at the time, it felt like they were a lot younger. I don't know, but they were probably only two, three years younger. But, but it, that is, a, when you're young, yeah, two, three years a, is a big they gap. They were a different, it wasn't Eric's, it wasn't... And they were kind of, you know, wandering around town with little shorts on and little haircuts, looking like they'd come out of a famous Five novel, yeah. uh, Enid Blight or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was a little bit, mm, you know, I don't know about that. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, being an old punk rocker, and there was this whole thing where they signed an enormous record deal. That was the the vibe, you know. In Lou was like, they signed a move to London. You know, I loved uh, the Associates, and they did an album with Alan Rankin. But and, it, and the whole talk was Akarak, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. That's my memory of it. I could be wrong. It was. It was like, it was all about Bert Bacharach and... and, pa, 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 and yeah, that, there was a lot of that on that first yeah, album. and it's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. great. And um, then, I don't know, yeah, I just remember meeting Mick and Chris, uh, who were the two kind of main fellas, really. Yeah. And I was kind of like, look, you know, I'm up for harsh guitars and strings. I'm not really up for the bacharach yeah. kind of soft... I'm, I'd, I'd want it to be, you know, a different thing. And... Yeah. Uh, you know, and really, I, my head was full of probably the idea from Flaming. I think I might have just done Flaming. So I, I might be wrong chronologically. I think I'd just done Flaming. That, 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 that does fit, yeah, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And also, they were very. Mick was very obsessed with having a chart. It was all about wanting to be in the charts. And I was coming from the Bunny Men, which was like, "Fuck London, fuck the charts. <laughs> we we don't we're we, you know Northwest. We don't care. You know." Yeah. And you know, from that whole. You know, factory, new order, yeah. bunny men. It was yeah. a different thing for me. So culturally, yeah. it was that was really probably the first time of having to do something for a record company. Mm. It was a, it was a real disappointing experience for me because so we went up to Scotland actually to Inverness mm. to some studio and we were just nothing around for miles near the Battle of Culloden. Some weird, you know, 
why we, how we ended up. Well, a lot of the time, how we ended up there actually was that it was the 80s and all these studios were making sounds like Spandau Ballet and stuff. And I wanted to sound a different way yeah. and use an old desk. Yeah. And those old desks were just in cheap studios in out-of-the-way places. So that's really what happened. In many ways, I always think Flaming Sword and a song called Jeans Not Happening are pretty much the lightning, the lightning seeds before the lightning seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember putting in all the dun, dun, you know, and yeah. all, all the arrangement for the strings. So that's all the arrangements that kind of come from you there? Oh, well, I, I, I don't know. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, I, 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 I yeah, wouldn't yeah. go that far. But, no, yeah. um, but, you know, having said that, I suppose, yeah, it, I worked with the string players and yeah. put the strings on, not, yeah. you know, and then the band went, we like that. Yeah. yeah. Because um, there's a lot of that, you know, like, you know, talk about that kind of Gallic influence as well. So, you know, a song like Bicycle Thieves, which, uh, you know, is like, you know, you could almost imagine if not one of those kind of Gallic singers like, or, you know, like Jack Brel, but you could certainly imagine like Scott Walker or even, la- or the, you know, later on Mark Almond really kind of having fun with a song like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it did have a French kind of feel to it, I think, and, you know, uh, but their first single on disc, there was a label called Disc Decrepiscule mm. and Something on My Mind, it was yeah, called. And brilliant I, song. I thought that was an absolutely brilliant song. Anyway, I really wanted to make a 60s sounding love Scott Walkery album, and that was very much the plan. And I, and I wasn't really a professional producer, and I became great friends with, uh, with Mick and Biffa, as we used to call him, Chris. Uh, and Biffa and I shared a flat and we became very friendly and it was it was kind of your life it wasn't like now a producer and you just get a job and then you see people for two weeks and you yeah. go so it became very embroiled in it you know yeah no absolutely and it's, it stands up so brilliantly as a record and you know I guess with each of those records that you were involved in you know you're building up your kind of knowledge base so that you could finally well, it was very, in a, in a way, it was kind of like that, but I was very upset at the end of that album because my vision was this whole thing, we were making it quite a 60s record. And then Lloyd Cole had just brought out a record and it was mixed in a very 80s way. Great record. Well, the Rattlesnakes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So they took it off me and it was mixed by the guy who mixed Lloyd Cole's record. So it was, I forget the guy's name, Paul something. Paul so Hardiman, maybe that's it. Yeah. So I was making the trouble with this bit, and I'd done all the strings, arranged all the songs, got a, had these kind of quite harsh guitars, and all the feedback at the beginning of Jeans uh, that happened. Or, and then it was kind of taken out of my hands and mixed in, in my eyes at that point in an extremely bland way. I felt totally betrayed. I thought, wow, I don't ever want to do this production again. You know, it's like I have no control now. So all of a sudden the switch has been switched off and I'm not involved. Yeah. And they're doing it in a way that is making me feel ill. Yeah. You know, like, not ill, that sounds terrible. I, I only say ill in the sense that it sounds yeah. terrible. I just mean because with music, I do when it's not yeah, you right, put, you it makes me feel you ill. You put everything you know? into it, you've got yeah. this vision, and it's never, it's gone, you know, it's, it can never be that way so, again. And I was still very, you know, so it was, a, yeah. it was a real moment for me of disappointment. So in a way, it did make me want to do my own thing, just because no one could do that to me again. What was the moment where you thought, okay, well, this next thing I do is going to be me, it's going to be my band, I'm going to call it this... Okay, so I think I was working with The Fall. How was that, by the way? 
Well, Mark was really, really supportive of me. I had a couple of songs and, and I ended up, you know, saying, oh, you know, I want to do my own things and playing a couple of my, my songs. And, you know, surprisingly, Mark was like, really, you've got to do that. You know, you should, you should do that and all that. But he wanted me to call it the Hordes of Brood. <laughs> the Hordes of Brood? The Hordes of Brood. And he was like, you've got to call it the Hordes of Brood. It was great, actually. And he, he used to do drawings of the Horde. He'd, I'd get a letter off him, and it'd be these little guys with bows and arrows. And these are the Hordes of Brood, you know. That's amazing. You've got to do this, you know. <laughs> and him and Bricks, I'm not sure I would have actually done it. But they were both, and Bricks were, you know, your, your, your voice, is, you've got to sing, you've got to, you know. Oh. And they were really... Um, they, quite, they, they, they emboldened you. Yeah, they did to a degree, you know, yeah. It, I mean, you know, it, I, yeah. So you worked on, was it, hey, I think I remember seeing your name on Hey Luciani? Yeah, and... Uh, was Mr. Pharmacist one Curious of Orange. Curious Orange, okay. Because, you know, they were kind of edging close to sort of a, a strange form of pop stardom at that point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mark had very smart jumpers on at that point. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, it, and that was a lot of fun, actually. And, and in fact, uh, the bass player in the fall, who I met during that session, Simon, worked with me on a lot of the Lightning Seeds, uh, not on Pure, but on the stuff after that. He worked with me and co-produced nearly everything else. So what would you have played to Mark and Bricks for them to say, you know, you've got to do this? There would have been a couple of songs that were on Cloud Cuckoo Land, but I, I, it wasn't pure. Look at me with starry eyes, push me up the starry skies. The stardust in my head, pure and simple every time. Fresh and deep as oceans new, shiver at the side of you. I'll sing a song to tune, pure and simple over you. Well, we enjoyed this conversation so much that we thought we'd split it into two parts. In the second part of this special Needle Mythology interview with Ian Brodie, we're going to pick up where we left off and Ian's going to tell us about Pure, the song that launched the lightning seeds and how, if he had had his way, no one else would have ever heard it. We're also going to hear about the years which saw him, I guess almost by accident, become a pop star, the effect of having a million-selling football song and, of course, about his beautiful 2004 album Tales Told, an unassuming masterpiece created in the throes of adversity and uh, also happens to be the joint first release on our new Needle Mythology label. This interview sounds exquisite thanks to the production genius of Laura Druce and the continuing support of Flair Audio makers of the unbeatably great Jet Earphones. See you next time. Fresh and deep as oceans new, shiver at the sea.